A warm welcome to First Move, everyone. I'm Christina McFarlane in for Julia Chatterley. Just ahead on today's show, assassination attempt. Ukrainian officials detain a woman they say was part of a plot to kill President Zelensky during a recent visit he took to southern Ukraine. A report just ahead. Plus, defiance in Niger. Coup leaders in the West African nation show no sign of giving up power after Sunday deadline expires. Neighbouring countries working on a plan for a possible intervention. And in the Women's World Cup action, England heads to the quarterfinals after beating Nigeria on penalties. Australia defeating Denmark too. All the latest World Cup action coming up later this hour. Well, investors hoping for some World Cup quality excitement on the global stock markets this week. Uh, US stocks on target for a higher open uh, after last week's pullback. European stocks here, as you can see, are mixed. And a volatile day on the global oil markets. Crude hitting four-month highs earlier today on fresh supply fears. Prices lower at the moment. And Saudi Aramco also announcing today that its profits fell some 38% in the second quarter as weaker oil prices hit the bottom line. More on the markets later in the programme. But first, Russian shelling in Ukraine's Kherson city killed at least one person early this morning as another residential building was targeted. Kyiv is accusing Moscow of, quote, endless assaults right now, saying Russian forces on the Eastern Front used nearly half a million munitions in the last week alone. And now more on that alleged assassination attempt on Ukraine's President Zelensky. Nick Peyton Walsh has this. Well, it isn't clear how advanced this alleged plot indeed was. And the Ukrainian security services, quite active in the media over the past week, claiming drone attacks on Russian cargo ships and amphibious assault vessels and indeed a bridge to Crimea. They are suggesting that they have intercepted uh, a Russian informant, uh, unclear of her nationality, but she worked in a charkiv in a military surplus store down towards the Crimean Peninsula on the southern coast. They suggest that she was trying to convey information to the Russians uh, about a likely visit by Vladimir Zelensky to Mykolaiv in the past. That's a key port city down on the south. And some of the messages that were exchanged uh, apparently show them suggesting, her interlocutors suggesting, well, can you get a picture of where he might be going? Is it a hospital? What time are we talking about? That sort of thing. And another reminder, I think, too, of the daily threats against Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, a man who famously at the start refused to leave Kiev saying, uh, I don't need ammo. I don't need a ride. Uh, I need ammo, allegedly, uh, when asked if he wanted an evacuation. And so this information coming out, I say, as we hear a lot from Ukrainian security services about their activities in the Black Sea, another part of really essentially the war opening here in a time when nightly we're also seeing uh, an exchange of barrages between the Ukrainians and the Russians. One killed in Kherson over the past 24 hours. The Ukrainians are saying, the Russians are saying, a Ukrainian drone may have got near Kaluga, that's to the south of Moscow. And so this tension ratcheting up slowly uh, as the pace potentially of Ukraine's counteroffensive in the south may grow in the days ahead. But no comfort to Ukrainian civilians on the receiving end of these Russian barrages. But an interesting development today with the suggestions of a targeted bid to try and hit the Ukrainian president. Nick Payton-Walsh, CNN, Southern Ukraine. 
Well, uh, two days of Ukrainian peace talks have wrapped up in Saudi Arabia. Diplomats from more than 40 countries gathered in Jeddah to discuss a peace plan backed by Ukraine. They agreed that any peace treaty must respect Ukraine's territorial integrity. Nick Robinson's joining me more on this now. And Nick, of course, it's significant to have so many of these nations sitting down together, some of them for the first time since the war broke out. But were any concrete steps taken towards that peace plan formula uh, put forward by President Zelensky? You know, we don't know because there are very few details that have actually been released. It's sort of a few small tantalizing, if you will, lines that there was sort of open and frank discussion and everyone had a good conversation. And the takeaway is that everyone should keep talking. It it doesn't tell you very much, um, but it does tell you that there's a diplomatic track in motion here. This was the second of of these types of sessions. The last one was held in Denmark about a month ago, and this had more than double the number of participants. It's worth noting that more than half of those participants already support Ukraine. you have countries like India, like South Africa, like United Arab Emirates, like China, um, who have uh, the ability to exert pressure over Russia and Russia's ability to prosecute the war. They buy oil products in the case of China, in the case of, in the case of India, um, for, and, and coal products uh, from, uh, from Russia. So, you know, there, there are points here where Ukraine can impress upon those countries why they need to do more to try to get Russia to the negotiating table. And of course, Russia not there and Russia saying that there was nothing was going to be achieved here. But the Russians also saying that they hope that those members, those nations from the global south, the BRICS nations, that they could exert their influence over Ukraine to, and, and, and the United States to kind of drive home the message of, of Russia's position. Dmitry Medvedev, the uh, deputy national security uh, council chief, said that Ukraine should come crawling on its knees asking for peace, that this is no time for peace talks. That's Russia's mindset, it appears. But this is a track of diplomacy um, absent anything else. I don't think we can say much more than that about it right now. History might give us a few more details in a few years' time. And, and Nick, is it significant that those BRICS nations were in the room? Because as you say, Russia was not. I mean, can they provide a sort of bridge, as it were, to Russia in this? And how significant, too, is it that China is reportedly saying it is in support of a third round of talks in that regard? These are significant because at the very minimum, they say that this conversation we're having with Ukraine is not pointless. Let's continue it. You know, China wants economic stability. India wants economic stability. Its economy has been hit by uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. It considers itself neutral, but uh, United States, Ukraine, their allies and partners would say India is buying up oil and gas from Russia that European nations are not buying. And there are allegations that India is actually on selling some of it to European markets. But the point being that because India's position uh, is, is currently to buy products from Russia, it has an economic ability to, to either continue to sustain Putin's war in Ukraine or to, to limit it if they were to stop buying some of those products. But that's not a, you know, the economics of that for India don't really work out. They're, they're having a tough economic time because of the war. So they want the war to end too. I think that's a commonality of most of these uh, participants around the table, that it's having, the war's having a bad economic effect on them. And therefore they'd like to, they'd like to also put pressure on Ukraine to get 
bit more realistic in their view uh, and buckle up and get some kind of peace deal that, that's not everything that Ukraine wants. But the, the position at the moment is Ukraine was there to sell its 10-point peace plan. And a key part of that peace plan, as you said, is that, uh, is that Ukraine's territorial sovereignty and integrity should be respected in keeping with the UN Charter. And that does se still seem to be the central tenet of these ongoing, and therefore it's important because Ukraine's position is continuing to be held as an important central point of the narrative going forward. And that's a message for Russia, whether or not they're at the table. Yeah, and we will continue to watch this space as these diplomatic talks uh, continue. Nick Robertson there, live for us. Thank you. Now, new this morning, Air France has suspended flights to and from the capital of Niger and neighbouring countries due to the ongoing coup and the closure of Niger's airspace. The airspace closure came Sunday. That's the same day the deadline set by the regional bloc, ECOWAS, came and went. The bloc had given Niger one week to release and reinstate the country's ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum, or face the potential use of force. And now the clock is ticking with the possibility of military action becoming a possibility. Larry Madeau is joining us live here. So, Larry, we know this self-imposed uh, ECOWAS deadline has long since passed. Any indication yet as to what their next move is going to be? It's a really odd situation where ECOWAS allowed the deadline to pass Sunday evening and has not said anything yet. They had the defense chiefs meeting for three days in the Nigerian capital, Abuja. They finished on Friday and they said that they had worked out the when, the how and the logistics of how a military intervention would take place. To be fair to them, they also said they would not announce it to the coup leaders in Niger when they would do that. But this silence is kind of unsettling for a lot of people who don't know if there's going to be a military confrontation in Niger or this is all past and ECOWAS was just saber-rattling. In the meantime, the coup leaders in Niger insist that an, a military attack is imminent and they have put their soldiers on standby. A source telling CNN that other, other troops from other parts of the country are being brought into the capital Niamey in anticipation of this um, intervention. They have also closed the airspace. That happened overnight, suddenly forcing many airlines like KLM and Air France and Kenya Airways to try and reroute around Nigerian airspace or go back to base. But in the meantime, we just haven't heard from the ECOWAS leaders what will be the next play, even when you hear this rhetoric coming from the military junta in Niger. Niger's armed forces and all our defense and security forces, backed by the unfailing support of our people, are ready to defend the integrity of our territory and the honor of our homeland. To this end, the National Council for Safeguarding the Homeland launches a vibrant appeal to the youth, to the worthy daughters and sons of our country, to stand ready to defend the homeland. The neighboring countries of Burkina Faso and Mali say they're sending a delegation to Niamey, the Nigerian capital, as a sign of solidarity. They're not saying they're sending military troops there. They're not sending soldiers. They're sending politicians. But they have said before that any military intervention in Niger, they would consider that an act of war, and they would band it together to defend the country. In the meantime, the French Foreign Affairs Ministry confirming that these coup leaders in Niger have talked to the Wagner Group, the private military contracting group that's already active in Mali, it's not clear if any contract has been signed or the nature of these discussions, but contact has been made, Christina. Yeah, these are certainly crucial hours ahead, and uh, I know you'll continue to follow it for us. Larry Madoa there, live for us. Thank you.
Now, the U.S. military has sent four of its naval destroyers to Alaska after spotting ships from China and Russia, quote, patrolling near the Alaska coast. A U.S. Northern Command spokesperson says the ships were not considered a threat. And Natasha Bertrand's uh, joining me now live from the Pentagon. Natasha, what more can you tell us about the possible purpose of this patrol and if indeed it did pose a threat to the U.S.? Yeah, Christina, this appears to have been an exercise. And of course, it is a yet another example of the growing military partnership between China and Russia. And what happened was roughly 11 Russian and Chinese vessels were operating very close to the coast of Alaska near the Aleutian Islands, according to the state senators, Dan Sullivan and Lisa Murkowski. The U.S. then chose to respond, sending four U.S. Navy destroyers as well as planes to monitor the situation and track those vessels' movements. But ultimately, according to a spokesperson for U.S. Northern Command, those ships did not pose a threat to either the U.S. or Canada. And importantly, they stayed in international waters. Now, the senators uh, issued a a statement that was a bit more concerned in its tone. And they said that this is really an example of Russia and China showing authoritarian aggression in the region. And they said that they had received a number of classified briefings by U.S. military officials about the transit of these ships. Uh, near Alaska. Notably, this is not the first time that this has happened. Russian and Chinese vessels also performed an exercise off the coast of Alaska last year and were met by a U.S. Coast Guard vessel that was just on a routine patrol. So Dan Sullivan, who is one of those senators from Alaska, he did say that he appreciates that the response this time around was a bit more robust, of course, sending those destroyers as well as the reconnaissance aircraft to monitor the ship's activities. But we should note that the Chinese embassy also released a statement telling CNN that the activity there was not directed at any third party and had nothing to do with, quote, uh, the international uh, or regional situation. So obviously they're trying to downplay it here. The U.S. reiterating uh, the, the, the principle of freedom of navigation, emphasizing that they were in international waters, an important point the U.S. has to make here because the U.S., of course, conducts these kinds of exercises off the coast of Russia and China as well pretty routinely, Christina. That's great, great context. Natasha Bertrand there live for us from the Pentagon. Thank you. And fresh military tensions in the South China Sea as well. The Philippine government condemning China for taking what it calls aggressive action against a Philippine ship on Saturday. Manila has summoned the Chinese envoy in protest. Mark Stewart has the story. The Philippines is condemning China, accusing it of using a water cannon on one of its vessels as a, quote, dangerous and illegal practice. This video is from over the weekend, showing a Chinese ship purportedly firing water at the Filipino boat. Smaller in size compared to the Chinese Coast Guard ship, the much smaller Philippine boat was attempting to deliver supplies to a Philippine military installation in the South China Sea. Some context, these waters have been a source of tension between the two nations. Beijing claims it as its own, yet Manila feels it has a right too. A 2016 ruling from The Hague contends that Beijing has no legal basis to claim historic rights to the bulk of the South China Sea. China has ignored the ruling. The incident has prompted the Philippines' foreign minister to deliver a complaint letter to the Chinese embassy on Monday. The United States is showing support to the Philippines, reaffirming its mutual defense treaty obligations. Australia, Germany and Japan have also weighed in, calling the Chinese actions dangerous and destabilizing. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo. 
Now, in Pakistan, an investigation is underway after a deadly train derailment. At least 30 people have been killed and dozens more injured after the passenger train crashed on Sunday. CNN's Anna Corrin has the latest. The death toll from Sunday's train derailment in Pakistan is expected to rise due to the severity of injuries, according to local officials. And looking at the pictures of the mangled wreckage of the aftermath, it's not difficult to understand why. Yesterday, the Hazara Express left Karachi, Pakistan's largest city, at 8 a.m. local, with 950 passengers on board. More than five hours later, just after 1 p.m., the train derailed near the town of Nawabshah in Sindh province, 170 miles from Karachi. Authorities say the train was travelling at moderate speed, 28 miles an hour, when it ran off the tracks. Ten cars derailed. This is a remote farming area, so the first people on the scene were local villagers trying to pull survivors from the wreckage. Eyewitnesses spoke of people screaming and bodies everywhere, including women and children. Local media reports it took hours for emergency crews to arrive. They had to bring in heavy machinery to free passengers who were trapped. The military also assisted. The injured were taken to local hospitals where an emergency was declared to deal with the influx of patients. Body bags lay on the ground next to survivors. Let's now have a listen to one of those survivors. It was so sudden and we were seated comfortably until then. We heard the growling sounds and I gathered that the train had derailed. Then a storm of dust spread. Then a birth fell on my head and blood splashed. The cause of the derailment is unknown at this stage, but the railway minister said it could be a technical fault or an act of sabotage. An investigation is underway. Fatal train accidents are frequent in Pakistan, and the country's decaying rail network has lacked funding and attention, despite promises from successive governments to upgrade the system. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. All right, straight ahead. Defiance in Niger. Coup leaders have closed the country's airspace and ignored demands to put the president back in power. We'll discuss the ongoing crisis when we return. And turn off the laptops and come back into the office. That's the message Zoom is telling its employees. The details of that later in the show. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Welcome back to First Move. Questions and concerns are mounting as the political crisis in Niger continues. The country's airspace closed Sunday, the same day the deadline set by the regional bloc ECOWAS to reinstate the country's democratically elected president expired. Coup leaders say the airspace was closed due to, quote, the threat of intervention from neighbouring countries. Thousands of protesters voiced their support over the coup over the weekend, uh, as you can see from these pictures here. But the mood in neighbouring countries is quite different. ECOWAS has warned that if the military junta do not stand down, it could face military intervention. Well, joining me now is Afolabi Adekoyoja, a research analyst at the Centre for Democracy and Development. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we know Thank you that for having it- me. We know that it was not that long ago that the ECOWAS chair in Nigeria's president said that ECOWAS would not allow coup after coup to happen in West Africa and that they must stand firm. I mean, arguably, Tanubi did not see this happening quite so quickly. But as we've been saying there, we know their deadline, their self-imposed deadline for military intervention has now passed. Why do you think we are not seeing any military action or indeed any action yet? So we believe that the original threat of the military intervention was done to try to deter the coup leaders from going further with any extensive plans, especially with regards to killing uh, President Bazoum. Now we know that within the different countries, there have been domestic concerns about the implications of a potential military intervention. So for example, in Nigeria, uh, even though the Nigerian president did not specifically ask the Senate for permission to go ahead, uh, the Senate leaders were very you know, adamant in ensuring that the president was aware that they would strongly prefer a diplomatic resolution and they would not prefer a military one. We also know that leaders in the northern part of Nigeria, which is primarily which primarily borders the Nigerian Republic, uh, were very adamant in trying to stress the president that it was something that was likely to lead to, as you mentioned, humanitarian influx of very big issues in the region. So we know that domestic concerns are playing a very big role uh, and are really trying to ensure that most regional powers are actively looking inwards to try to find more diplomatic um, ways to really deal with the situation. Uh, it's, it's something that ECOWAS actually has been discussing. So earlier last week, ECOWAS actually had a meeting of the senior military generals in Abuja. So we do know that there have been plans and there have been preparations for any particular intervention. However, we do know that diplomatic priorities are still really what many groups are going for and something that we do hope will become the, uh, the eventual way forward for resolution. But the, the example that you cited before was not centred around a coup. And in fact, if ECOWAS do respond militarily, this will be the first time they have done so, done so during a coup. A coup. Um, will it not damage their credibility if they do not intervene at this stage militarily? Well, not necessarily, because part of the challenge that Goas is dealing with is the precedence it has set in responding to similar coups. So since in, in, in 2020, we've had coups in Mali, in Guinea, in Burkina Faso twice. Uh, and then in those particular situations, ECOWAS did not intervene militarily. In fact, it just really applied sanctions. It withdrew uh, the 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 advantages of being able to block. And then it's tried in many of the situations to try to agree on a timeline forward for for return to democracy. Guinea is meant to have a similar uh, election next year. And even in, even in regards to Niger, with a similar situation in 2010, the last time that Niger actually had a coup. And then ECOWAS also similarly worked around with a similar transition to try to ensure a return to democracy within a set period of time. Uh, but we do note that it's possible that with a new president who is also, as you mentioned, the ECOWAS chair, 
uh, and yeah. want to have a much more extensive foreign policy. Since it is possible that this is something that has been really stated quite clearly to try to form a deterrent towards any particular actions uh, by, yeah. the, by the Niger leaders. And uh, uh, even despite that, we still have high provider allegations going to Niger to try to address the situation. And I just wanted to get your very quick thoughts on this, because we have heard that Mali and Burkina Faso have said that any intervention in their minds would be a declaration of war. I mean, how credible is the threat that those countries would intervene, especially as we know that they have the backing of Wagner military operatives? Well, the situation is quite fluid. So this is the case where we do know that right now that they might be able to count on that support. But then uh, going forward, especially as the geopolitics evolves, it's something that could easily change. So, for example, there were reports about Senegal and even Algeria that borders Niger to the north uh, being much more averse uh, to a particular intervention. But there were also seen reports recently that actually has changed that particular perception. And naturally, Mali, Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso uh, are part of the, uh, the so-called cool belt, the particular area in West Africa. So it is quite likely that this is part of the situation to try to ensure stability in their particular countries. That being said, we do know that there's a much more strategic uh, importance for Niger and something that many different powers, not just not just within the, you know, the very different Western-based uh, uh, focus that many different publications have to focus on, but even within the country and within the continent, are really ensuring and working hard to make sure that Niger actually comes back to a much more stable democracy, not just for the country itself, but also for the citizens who will definitely be more affected if any intervention to take place. And we certainly hope that that will be the outcome here. Uh, Afalabi Edekoyoja, uh, Research Analyst for the Centre of Democracy and Development. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, stay with CNN coming up. The clock is ticking from Trump's legal team in his election interference case. We'll have all the details next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on Wall Street for the first session of the week. A higher open in early trading. The bulls trying to bounce back from last week's losses. The tech-heavy Nasdaq was the worst performer, dropping almost 3% as higher yields hit sentiment. Yields are rising as the U.S. government plans to borrow more. The big events on Wall Street's calendar take place Thursday when the U.S. releases its latest look at consumer prices. Now, the Trump legal team have just hours to respond to U.S. prosecutors' request to limit what Trump can say publicly about the evidence against him. On top of that, the former president's attorney is vowing to try and relocate the trial from Washington, D.C., saying a jury in the Capitol will not reflect the character of the American people. Meantime, a potential fourth indictment looms in the state of Georgia. Well, Ellie Honig uh, is here and joining us here now to break this all down for us. Thank goodness. Uh, Ellie, first of all, just talk to us about this uh, protective order. I mean, uh, from what I understand, it's very different from a gag order. Why did the Justice Department deem this necessary? And how is how is the judge likely to respond here? So, Christina, the Justice Department is asking for the judge to put certain limits on what Donald Trump can say publicly about the evidence that he's turned over. They're not trying to limit in any way uh, Donald Trump's ability to use that evidence at trial. They're just saying there need to be lines drawn here about what he can say publicly about the evidence. The concern is that his comments may lead to witnesses feeling intimidated or retaliated against. There were a slew of social media posts over the weekend from Donald Trump that certainly could be construed to that effect. So the judge has to decide what limits am I going to put not on Donald Trump's ability to see the evidence and use it, but on his ability to talk publicly about it. 
Understood. And, and um, as we were saying there, we are expecting a fourth indictment or a fourth indictment is looking very imminent in the Georgia election case. How much is this going to complicate an already very busy period for Donald Trump, uh, you know, during campaigning for the 2024 election? And is there going to be time to fit in these trial dates ahead of the election? So we already have three indictments pending now against Donald Trump. Two of them are federal prosecutions brought by DOJ by the special prosecutor, Jack Smith. There's the January 6th indictment, which came down last week. And then there's the indictment for classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, which came down in June. That's two. The third indicted case is in the Manhattan DA's office. That's a state level prosecution relating to hush money payments that Donald Trump made to women before the 2016 election. If and when the Fulton County, Georgia indictment drops, and I do think it's very, very likely we get that sometime this week or next, that'll then be a fourth indictment against Donald Trump. All of these cases are jockeying for position on the calendar. As it stands right now, the first two cases, the Manhattan DA case and the Mar-a-Lago case, they're already scheduled for trial that will run March through April for the Manhattan DA case and then May, June, July for the Mar-a-Lago case. So I don't even see an opening as it stands now for the January 6th case, never mind for the Fulton County case. But it's important to keep in mind with all of these trial dates, they can and do move. And so these prosecutors may need to get together and figure out which are the highest priority, which ones do we need to get in before the election? Yes, it's definite logjam going on, isn't there? Um, We also heard from Donald Trump saying that he thinks he won't get a fair judge or jury if the case um, is held in Washington. Um, The judge in this case is a former Obama nominee. I mean, what do you make of of that claim and and how likely is it to be moved out of Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I think those particular claims are meritless, and I think it's very unlikely to be moved out of Washington, D.C. A party can get a case moved out of a certain venue in the very, very rare instance where it's utterly impossible to get a fair trial. Now, Donald Trump's got to be worried here because he only got 5.4 percent of the vote in D.C. in 2020, meaning 95 percent or so of D.C. voted against him. But that on its own does not justify a removal to another district. There are procedures in place to safeguard the jury. Donald Trump himself, his legal team, will have the ability to remove jurors who they believe are unduly biased. With respect to the judge, yes, the judge, Judge Tanya Chutkin, was confer- was nominated to the bench by Barack Obama. That does not inherently mean she's biased any more than the fact that in Florida, Donald Trump is in front of a judge who he put on the bench, Judge Eileen Cannon. In neither case is that enough to get the judge disqualified. But we are seeing continuing attacks on the judge and the jury process by Donald Trump. I think those are corrosive and I think they're unlikely to result in anything being moved. Yeah, we will wait to see uh, on that and on the protective order how the judge responds. Uh, Ellie Honig, the hardest working man at CNN right now, it seems. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Christina. All right. All right. Coming up on First Move, England clashing with Nigeria while Australia facing Denmark. All the action from the World Cup knockout stage next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move and the Women's World Cup. Ten-player England advancing to the quarterfinals after beating Nigeria on a penalty shootout. 
the Lionesses held on in extra time after star player Lauren James received a red card in the 87th minute. And meanwhile, co-host Australia defeating Denmark 2-0 in front of a nearly 76,000 home fans in the stadium. This all-art of defending champion USA crashed out of the tournament, losing to Sweden on wild penalty kicks on Sunday. Well, Angus Watson is joining us uh, live with all of this. Uh, so let's start with the action today, Angus. Obviously, England and Australia through Australia. Sam Kerr back in the side for this fixture, uh, much to the light of home fans. And obviously, it was a convincing win for Australia, but perhaps less so for England, even though they did win on penalties. That's right, Christina. Nigeria had much of the attacking opportunities in that match, particularly in the first half. But England hanging on nil-nil, of course, after 120 minutes of play. And when that happens, as we know, it goes to the lottery of the penalty shootout and then it really is anyone. So disappointment, of course, for Nigeria. England will be relieved. Nigeria, really one of the surprise packets of this tournament. They've been fantastic, beating Australia, of course, 3-2 in that second game of the group stages. So the Australian public here knows Nigeria very well. They'll go home very proud, that team, I'm absolutely sure. Here, where I am at Stadium Australia in Sydney, the Matildas riding the next chapter of Australian footballing history in front of 75,000 screaming fans here, Christina. And as you say, they did it well going ahead 1-0 in the first half to Caitlin Ford, nicely tucked away for her goal, sitting back, allowing Denmark to hit them on the counter, being patient, and then the second goal came Hayley Rasso in the second half. But it was that moment when Sam Kerr took the field that really got the fans going here in Stadium Australia. It was a really wonderful moment for Australian sport, for the Australian public who have been so worried about her calf that's kept her out of the competition so far. Big hopes for Sam, big hopes for the Matildas as the tournament goes on, Christina. Yeah, her first game of the tournament and she's only just getting started uh, now, it seems. Um, and Angus, I'm sure uh, USA fans um, are reliving and re-watching that controversial VAR penalty moment from Sunday. I mean, how much of a shock exit was this for the US women's national team? And what does this spell for the tournament now, given obviously they were big, heavy favourites and uh, big favourites among the fans? Well, it certainly throws open the competition for teams like Australia and England who were fancied ahead of, ahead of the games, but of course always had to contend with looming Team USA going for that three-peat so dominant historically at these World Cups. But of course, disappointment for them down in Melbourne, losing that penalty shooter. I've not seen a penalty shootout like that, Christina, in a very long time. Both teams missing uh, penalties there, two each, four penalties missed in a row. Astonishing. You had Me Megan Rapinoe missing one. You had Kelly O'Hara missing one. These are sports people that don't miss. It was astonishing. And that VAR result at the end, everyone with their hearts in their mouth. And you've got to feel for the American goalie Neha, who really would have thought that she'd kept that out. So disappointing for her in the end. So disappointing for the team. But they'll rebuild. As you say, Team USA are a powerhouse. They will be for a very long time. Bright future, of course, Christina. Yeah.
Uh, and real heartbreak for Megan Rapinoe as well to go out of her World Cup in, in that way. I really felt for her. Uh, Angus, we'll be back with you for more. Thanks so much. And as the World Cup thrillers and upsets continue, the viewership is soaring. In the United States alone, the group stage matches average more than 4.3 million viewers, setting a new record. Nearly 6.5 million Americans watched the US-Netherlands match. That's over a 20% increase from four years ago. Great news for the sponsors and businesses who purchased advertising space throughout the tournament. Marketing and sponsorship agency Goals says sponsors of the women's sport reap better returns than sponsors of the men's sports. Well, joining us now is the goal CEO, Caroline Fitzgerald. Uh, great to have you with us. Uh, first of all, I just want to say commiserations for the US women's national team exiting the group uh, yesterday in heartbreaking fashion. How is that being felt there stateside? Hello, first of all, thanks for having me. It is a tough moment here in the United States. Our hearts are with the team. An incredible f performance by them, though, and kudos to them. The legacy of that team is not just this one game. It doesn't come down to just a few penalty kicks. We know the legacy of that team goes far beyond, beyond that with four World Cups under their belt. So we're definitely feeling it over here. But honestly, I think them leaving is a testament to the increased caliber of the football that we're seeing in this World Cup because of increased investment that's going into federations across the globe. Yeah, and let's talk a bit more about that because it certainly has delivered on drama this World Cup. There's no doubt about it, but it's also been delivering on record-breaking attendance and viewership, as we were saying at the top there. In what ways is women's football now outperforming men's football? Yeah, absolutely. What we're seeing with women's sports is that it's a largely untapped market with high growth potential. You referenced some of the numbers at the top about record viewership, record sponsorship sales, record merchandise sales. The global fan demand that we're seeing for women's sports right now is absolutely off the charts. And as gender equality comes more into the forefront of societal conversations, brands are starting to see that investing in women's sports is not only the right thing to do, it's actually a great business move. The special thing about women's sports is doing what is right lives alongside what is profitable. And for these brands that have invested and are sponsors of the World Cup, I think they're actually going to start seeing better returns on their sponsorships with women's sports than men's sports. And I know that's a bold statement, but there's data to back that up. So there are two big reports that have come out within the last two weeks alone that prove that investing in women's sports is actually better business than investing in men's sports. So the first is a report from the collective at Wasserman, which is a global sports agency, and they found that fans of women's sports are 54% more aware of brand sponsors and are 45% more likely to make a purchase or consider a purchase from a brand sponsor that sponsors a women's sports team, league, or athlete than that of men's sports. The other report is a report from the Office of Women in Sport and Recreation in Australia, and they found that women's elite sport sponsors outperform men's sports when it comes to brand awareness, customer conversion, and brand consideration. And that for every $1 a corporate sponsor invests in women's sports, they see $7.29 in return. So it's this, excuse me, an incredible business proposition for these sponsors. 
And this is, this is, I mean, music to my ears as someone who's followed women's football for so long. Do you think, I mean, you mentioned equal pay. Do you think that this will, these figures are going to kind of undermine the long running argument that women don't deserve equal pay because they can't attract the same sort of uh, sponsors, advertising revenues that the men's game? I mean, this is really undermining this, isn't it? And, and how do you see that moving forward after this World Cup? It is. And it's absolutely, you know, it's a growing market. It's an emerging market, women's sports. In many ways, women's sports are still in startup phase. So I don't think anybody's saying that overnight we're going to wave a magic wand and have equal pay. But what we're proving here with this World Cup and with the trajectory of women's sports that we've seen over the last few years is that it's good business. So as more brand investment comes in, we're going to see that pay gap equal out because it's a business. As more money comes in, more money is going to go out and that's going to return to the players. Yeah, well, it's all trending in the right direction, isn't it? And we haven't even, we're not even done yet with this World Cup. Uh, Plenty more action to come. Caroline Fitzgerald, CEO of Goals. It's great to have your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. All right, still to come, it's Barbie's world and we are all just living in it. We talk the history-making box office after the break. Welcome back. Zoom, the company famed for its virtual meeting technology, is asking its employees to come back to the office. Now, Zoom's popularity exploded during the pandemic when the need for online meetings surged and working from home became a reality for many. But now it's back to business, it seems. Zoom telling CNN that employees that live nearby need to be back in the office for a certain number of days. Matt Egan is joining us to discuss this. And Matt, I guess the irony of this will not be lost on many people. Um, What are Zoom stipulating here for their employees? How many days? Well, Christina, it is so telling that even Zoom wants its employees back in the office. I mean, perhaps more than any other company, Zoom saw its fortunes just skyrocketed during COVID because its technology helped make remote work uh, possible. Look at that stock chart. This stock was trading at around $68 uh, in late 2019. It got up to almost $600 at the peak in late 2020. And it's basically back to where it started because this remote work boom has unwound to some extent. And so Zoom is saying that um, its employees do need to be back in the office uh, if they live close enough. Here's what the company says in a statement. Quote, we believe that a structured hybrid approach, meaning a set number of days employees that live near an office need to be on site, is most effective for Zoom. So, you know, in some ways this is the end of an era uh, because it's coming from Zoom, and it is symbolic of this broader shift. Um, a lot of tech companies that have been trying hard to get employees uh, to come back to the office at least a few days a week, including uh, Meta and Google owner Alphabet. Uh, obviously, this is disappointing to some employees who like the flexibility of all remote work. Uh, it means less time commuting, maybe easier childcare, easier to get Uh, stuff done around the house. Uh, So disappointing to that extent. Uh, But it is noteworthy that even the White House wants employees back in the office. Uh, Just on Friday, the chief of staff of the White House sent a note to uh, agency chiefs saying that they want federal agency workers to be back at least a few days a week. And they cited uh, the benefits of productivity and, Christina, the end of the public health emergency. Gosh, the working from home fun times are over, it seems. No more working in our gym jams uh, on a Friday. (laughs) Matt Egan, uh, thanks for breaking it down for us, uh, uh, for that uh, interesting precedent that Zoom seemed to be setting. Appreciate it. Now, it's a celebration in Barbie land. 
Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. A little over two weeks after its release, Barbie has already ranked or raked in over one billion dollars at the box office worldwide. The Pretty in Pink blockbuster is the fastest movie to reach 400 million domestically and 500 million internationally. It also makes writer-director Greta Gerwig the first solo female director with a billion dollar movie. The movie is one half of the viral Barbenheimer phenomenon. The other half, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, also hit a milestone over the weekend. Nathaniel Mearson uh, joins me now to discuss this. And Nathaniel, no doubt that the Barbenheimer phenomenon has played into this, but no, that's not the only reason. Um, walk us through how the Barbie, uh, Barbie makers have done this. Yes. Uh, so this is the summer of Barbie, the summer of Ryan Gosling, Margot Robbie, Ken, Barbie, and uh, Greta Gerwig, as you pointed out, the first female director um, to reach a billion dollars in box office sales. I think that this is a sign of a phenomenon. Uh, Clearly, the marketing, all the marketing that went into this movie that was made by Warner Brothers Discovery, which is the parent company of CNN, um, really has paid off. And it shows that people still want to go to the box office. They still want to see these big stars. And that's translating into tremendous success for the movie and also the movie theater industry, which could use this boost as as it tries to recover from the impact of the pandemic and also faces this right and actors strike that could delay movies uh, and new releases. And just uh, briefly on Oppenheimer, I mean, I think they made, what, half a billion, um, which in itself was an achievement. Tell us how. Yeah, so this is the fastest growing and first uh, movie to reach half a billion dollars that is based on World War II. I have, I have seen Oppenheimer, haven't seen um, Barbie, but it really is a, tr- is a tremendous success um, made by Christop- Christopher Nolan. Um, so worth seeing uh, both of these uh, for sure, um, but clearly a kind of a cultural phenomenon that we're seeing right now at the box office. Yes, indeed. Uh, One that I have not seen either. Just Oppenheimer for me for the time being. But I am working on Barbie. And Nathaniel, thanks so much. Now, just briefly, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk have been a bit cagey over the details of the cage match they appear to have agreed to stage. But Musk over the weekend gave an update. He says it will be streamed on his social media site X, formerly Twitter, and he says the money raised will be donated to charity. Zuckerberg said on his Twitter rival site Threads that he's still waiting for Musk to confirm his suggested date. 39-year-old Zuckerberg wants to stage the fight on August 26th, saying he's ready to do battle right now. Well, meanwhile, 52-year-old Musk says he's been limbering up too and predicts that uh, he will win if the fight is short. And on it goes. And finally, you've heard about flights being delayed because of bad weather. But what about a delay for a bad bear? Passengers on an Iraqi Airways flight travelling from Baghdad to Dubai were delayed after a bear escaped from its crate in the cargo hold. The escapee was eventually sedated and taken off the plane. The airline apologised for the delay, but did not reveal why the bear was being transported or any information of its well-being once it reached its final destination. I think everyone was just more worried about the delay by the sound of it. Uh, That is it for this show. Thank you so much for joining us. Connect the World is coming up next. Stay with us. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.